Well, thanks everyone for being here. And uh, we have a very special guest today, uh, Peter Athlerbach, author of Teaching Readers, Not Reading. Um, and uh, it's out of Guilford Press. It was published this year. And we've been reading this together on the site and uh, posing questions and responding. And um, so it's a treat to kind of end the study by talking to the author himself. Uh, Reading your bio, Peter, you're a professor of education at the University of Maryland. Uh, your research and teaching interests include individual differences and in how they influence reading development, reading assessment, reading comprehension strategies, and the verbal reporting methodology. Um, you have several uh, books, including uh, Teaching Readers Not Reading, Moving Beyond Skills and Strategies, uh, to reader-focused instruction, as well as the Handbook of Individual Differences in Reading, Reader Text and Context, Understanding and Using Reading Assessment K-12, and several other books, um, uh, several through Routledge. So um, you've done work with um, the Framework Committee for NAEP, um, the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Achievement Level Descriptors for NAEP, a research fellow with the American Educational Research Association, and an elected member of the International Literacy Association's Reading Hall of Fame. And uh, you're a former K-12 reading teacher, proud graduate, proud graduate of New York City Public Schools and the University of Albany. And I just wanna say a special thanks for publishing this book. Um, you know, someone with your credibility and uh, knowledge to have that, you know, for all of us to access really helps us advocate for our kids, our colleagues, and and ourselves. So just thank you for doing this. Um, sure. Anything I missed, Peter, that you know you would want to add to that? Um, no, I mean, that does more than a generous introduction. So thank you. And I'll pose the first question. I'll put it in the chat and um, just so everyone can reference it if I didn't speak clearly enough. Uh, the first one is, which individuals influenced you as a researcher um, and or as a teacher? Um, well, th there's like different groups. I, I, you know, I'd start with my parents who were real avid readers. My mom was a, a New York city public school librarian. And so, um, and modeled reading and love reading as did my dad. And, um, you know, I, I just think that that's, that's almost a fail safe way to become a really good reader, to be surrounded by books and models of, um, enthusiastic reading um a uh another group would be the students i've worked with and uh you know i think especially of this uh, this one uh kindergartner his name was ronnie and um i i taught my first years was were teaching up in the adirondack mountains in upstate new york and the um title one chapter one position that i had they didn't have any real classrooms so we were down in the boil next to the boiler room which in the winter in the Adirondacks was the the primo spot but in this you know in the spring and fall it was a little warm but I had um I was a K through six remedial reading teacher and I had I had my um, undergraduate teaching degree and my master's in reading and this kid Ronnie was somebody who ran really hot and cold um so he could be really focused and accomplished some days and really off task and in another world other days. And I, you know, I think part of my interactions with him were um, 
But the reason I went back to do a PhD, because I, I realized I had no clue as to what was going on. And I, and I felt pretty inadequate as a teacher to be in that position. And um, then my, my mentors in graduate school, um, I think is Gail who mentioned this. I, I was really fortunate to be Peter Johnston's first doctoral student, <clears throat> excuse me. And um, I also worked with Dick Allington and, you know, to have Dick and Peter as um, mentors and committee members was um, just, um, you know, my sheer good luck. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that without their support and their modeling of how to be um, a researcher and uh, a thinker, I, you know, wouldn't be where I am today. Um, and then I, you know, I, I was, I've been at the University of Maryland for 32 years and I've worked with um, John Guthrie and Patricia Alexander and Alan Wigfield who are in a different department, but who have real solid interests in things like motivation and self-efficacy, which um, I feel really complemented my training, which was more in cognitive strategies and things like that. So it, it um, helped round me out. And I've, I've always been a, I, I guess I've been a fan of thinking about reading and reading research and the edges of that research and where, where we can learn from affiliated fields. And you know, I, I think we'd all agree that right now we're in a really rough spot where there's an overemphasis on one segment of reading research. And there's a you know mistaken idea that you just take statistically significant results and try to put them into a classroom and then then you're doing everything that you can for kids. And that's certainly not not the the case. So so I, I yeah, I guess family, uh, my former elementary and middle and high school students and um and my my mentors in graduate school and then where I've taught at university. So and I, I remember you I was at one of your sessions, I think, uh at the Wisconsin State Reading Association, and you mentioned uh Peter Johnson as being one of your as as your first as your advisor and Mm-hmm. Um, and just and then reading your book, you'd see a lot of that influence. Um, you know, especially in the chapter on motivation and engagement. Um, and thinking about your book in terms of there, there was so much research in there. I mean, I read it once, and I, after I was done, I'm like, okay, I got to read it again. But like with other people, <laughs> you know, like uh-huh. our colleagues here, just to really tease out some of the important insights and just. Um, might be a difficult question, but just from your book, what do you regard as the most, uh, I left out a word, is the most important professional contribution of yours and or colleagues to the field of literacy instruction? If there's a study or uh, a finding that you feel like just is critical for everyone to be aware of, what, what, what might that be? Um you will, well, I, I think just pushing back on the idea, which which is a, a long-standing idea, um, that reading good reading instruction consists solely um, of teaching strategies and skills. And I, you know, I think a lot of us on this call probably came up through uh, systems that you know had each of these like scope and sequence charts, and where we'd start in kindergarten or first grade, and somewhere in a uh, publisher's office, um, people who kind of knew what they were doing were, were saying, well, at the end of first grade, then you 
are like this. And then hopefully over the summer, there's not too retrograde stuff going on. And then when you start second grade, you'll be about here. And um, having a, like a real, I guess, history of investigating in, in my case, comprehension strategies, I would never argue against the importance of strategy and skill, but I, you know, I would, I would hope that the message in the book, one of the strong messages is um, we have loads of kids who get strategy and skill. Can I say up the wazoo, but um, it, and they, they're not, they're not reading. And, you know, part of it is um, they have become detached from being interested in learning to become a better reader. And uh, another part is that they develop anxiety about reading and, Another part is uh, what might have once been a joyful act or a joyful thing to observe in, at home or with a first or second grade teacher is not relatable to students because of um, diminished self-efficacy, lack of motivation, things like that. So, um, and and I, I guess following up on that, the idea that Every we all know this. It's it's the magnificent teacher who can teach to individual differences in the classroom, especially in the current um, context of um, you know phonics first and um, sort of the cult like behavior that what I think a lot of phonics uh, supporters demonstrate. You know, it's like our way or the highway, and it's uh, it's really sad to me because we know so much more about what it takes to um, help readers really thrive. Have you, you mentioned this before, you alluded to it before, Peter, of, um, you know, you, you felt like you needed more information, more knowledge to, to properly address the kids in your classroom and your, in your work. And have you always prioritized teaching readers over teaching reading or has this been like a change over the years and evolution? Yeah, no, it's been an evolution. I, you know, I, um, I did my master's at Albany, um, and Dick Allington was my advisor. And we, you know, we used this book, um, you know, teaching reading that was probably written in the early 70s, mid 70s. And it, it was a pretty like traditional, teach these strategies and skills, and you'll probably end up with kids who can read. And, you know, what I saw um, in that K through six position. And then I moved to um, Saratoga Springs in upstate New York. And I taught remedial reading in seventh, eighth and ninth grade. And that was the hardest job I ever had. As you might imagine, you know, like remedial readers in middle school are middle schoolers who I think are the toughest crowd anyway. But when you've got uh, sort of sullen, uh, detached students who like, I always thought it was an accomplishment for them to even come into school in the morning because my my students had established histories of failing and it was just a uh it, it was it was hard it, it was hard to get them motivated and of course you know this the my trying to be uh reflective about my teaching um you know taught me that there's a lot that i need to address that's not just strategy and skill that and first of all is there something that the student can look forward to coming into to my class and um, that might be a good base for for starting. Um, and that that answers. I think the last question I had ready for you is just where do where do teachers begin 
with this work. That was one piece of feedback I think we had during the study is, um, where do I begin? There's so many entry points, I guess. And I, I suppose it does matter to someone's, to one's context, if you're teaching middle school or uh, elementary or high school. Um, but it sounds like engagement and, and motivation, particularly, was, was an important starting point. Any other areas where you found, where you've seen success with with the different sciences of reading that. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, um, thanks for these questions. I, I just want to step back and say, you know, of course, all of these things are connected and um, you know, I, I would say right up there with motivation and engagement is self-efficacy. And um, you know, I like to tell this little story about <laughs> I've lived in New York state, Maryland, Georgia, and California and my experience with the Department of Motor Vehicles in each of those states has taught me to try to avoid being in a motor vehicle building at all costs because I, you know, I, I'll go in, there'll be some surly uh, state employee who is not really kind or uh, illuminating about what line or documents I should um, pick up and then what line to stand in. And then I'll stand in line and I'll, you know, for an hour and then someone will say, you're in the wrong line. And I I think the, the counterpart for uh, students who are not doing well in any subject in school is why, why am I here? And why would I, why would anybody expect me to um, persist or to give effort when I've convinced myself that I'm not going to be successful? And, and of course, that's an easy step to think about motivation and engagement. If you have low self-efficacy, um, there's there's going to be diminished, if no, motivation. And um, the chances of being engaged in anything that's planned in a, in a lesson are, are pretty small. And then, you know, you, then you step to the right and you can think about attributions and attribution theory and how um, the stories that we create to explain to ourselves why we're doing what we're doing, like the outcomes of the things we're involved in. Um, there, I've, I've worked in two university reading clinics and the, the, those areas of self-efficacy, motivation, engagement, attribution are all um, areas that need immediate attention. And, and I would always say they need immediate attention before any skill or strategy instruction, because um, that plus the student trusting you and and believing that you're there for their benefit for their good is is really important and i don't see that happening in um in a lot of instances um whether or not it's an actual classroom that i'm visiting or um the rhetoric that i um sometimes read in different places about what kids need yeah yeah so I, we really we really need to know our kids and our readers i think that that's crucial. And yeah, yeah. And, you know, I, th- I think like I'm, I'm trying to think back to the first year that I taught and, you know, my really like uh, nascent idea about motivation and engagement was I'll try to find um, something that each of my students really likes. And then I'll just try to find reading materials that is related to what my students like. And that's, that's not a bad step, but, but that was a very simple idea because I, I, hadn't learned about things like self-efficacy, although you know, I, I was, I got pretty good at recognizing people who lacked self-efficacy, even though I didn't know what to call it. You know, it was like, oh, they're detached. They don't see the point to what they're being asked to do. They have histories of, of things not working out well. So why would any human being um, in those conditions, 
child or adult want to be there and and want to give effort so the final prepare question i have and and then we'll open the floor to to anyone who'd like to just what's coming up for their mind and um but the last one is what are you mentioned phonics is a an important trend that is sometimes monopolizing the conversation around teaching readers um, but other important trends that as as educators we should be paying attention to um yeah i'm ju- i'm just reflecting on what i've said already and i i i don't want to be uh <laughs> too negative um you know i think the um the best classrooms are ones where we pay attention to individual differences where we have things that um you know literacy is is important but it's not the end point it's the tool that kids use like in problem uh, based learning um where comprehension of a text or text is a midpoint of something rather than an endpoint you know that we don't we don't think about a successful reader as someone who can answer 10 multiple choice questions about the content of text but we think about a student who could probably do that but then applies the knowledge gained from reading in a meaningful task which is helping kids catch up to why adults read also like we don't we don't really read outside of school to answer multiple choice questions so right i just uh, try to uh, capture the uh, initial quote there the best classrooms are the ones that recognize individual differences that that really stands out to me and i appreciate that and um yeah i guess at this time if you have any questions for peter um feel free just to unmute you don't need to raise your hand and before before I, I having mentioned individualized difference individual differences um the the place where i see those being uh recognized honored and taught with are you know buildings and districts with strong administrators who um are really supportive of teachers and i see it to a lesser degree where administrators are not as strong or kind of forced into curricular corners that um, don't allow them to be as supportive as they might be. And so it's, um, you know, it's the teacher's own time that then allows uh, something like teaching to individual differences to happen. That's a good point. And as a principal myself, I I would point to a superintendent's support, you know, and it it really matters all the way up. So very good point. Right. Peter, during uh, the 80s, late 80s and 90s, we were very cognizant of the importance of being a reflective practitioner. Right. And, it, and you mentioned reflection uh, a few moments ago, and you've talked all around it. It seems as though reflection has moved outside of the teacher uh, so that the teacher doesn't have the agency uh, that they were once encouraged to have. And I'm wondering in this context that we're in right now, how do we re-encourage people to be reflective practitioners, uh, not only as leaders, as curriculum uh, directors, as I was for many years, but also within the classroom? Yeah, um, that's that's a... Very important question and a huge challenge. Um, 
I, I think, you know, accompanying a lot of the current um, requirement or request for focusing on skills and strategies is the idea that um, teachers do best with scripted lessons. And in, in, in fact, if you look at the research, which, um, for example, phonics folks will cite, and an aside to that would be, of course, a lot of that isn't even conclusive, even though it continually is cited as being conclusive. Um, what what you find is the the gold standard is having uh, teachers read scripts, and um, you know from a research perspective, that's where you um, you really get tight control of your um, your variables, so that you can say across ten classrooms where we're looking for some sort of statistically significant outcome we had teachers doing exactly the same thing. So then we can say there was no variation there. And, and of course that goes against the very idea of teachers being reflective. Um, I, I think one of the, um, well, a district near and dear to my heart, um, I, I live in Montgomery County in Maryland and over 20 years ago, uh, there was a group of principals that um, I knew and worked with who decided they were not gonna spend professional development money um, asking someone like me to come in, you know, on a teacher work day at the end of the semester or something where no one wanted to be there, but they would take those funds to pay for um, substitute teachers so that cohorts of fourth grade, third grade, second grade, first grade teachers could meet regularly across the school year and work on uh, a shared project, you know, something of shared interest. And there was never, um, in my recollection, a single instance where the the cohort of five or six, say, fourth grade teachers couldn't agree on something that was all important enough for them to to make it the focus of their study. And that the study involved um, what are the best practices? How do we change what we read about best practices into practice in our classroom? Um, but the administrative support was there because um, the teachers had a regular period to meet to do that. They didn't have to fight and they didn't have to go to a donut shop after school. It was, it was part of the budget and it was um, an alternative to have someone who's a so-called expert come in who may or may not know the children of the school, who may or may not know the community, who may or may not know the parents or any of the history of the school, but the, the teachers who actually were there. And I, I think that that, was a big inv invitation to be reflective. Um, and, and again, you know, I, I think we can all um, identify, dream about districts that allow things like that, that encourage things like that. But at the same time, there are many districts that would be the farthest thing from uh, their way of thinking. So. And um, yeah, Title II funds can be used for subs, just Throwing that, throwing that out there for any administrator that might be listening later. Um, uh, I know Sally had a question that she posted on the thread, and um, I don't know if you want me to put it in the chat, Sally, or... Okay. I'll read it. Um, Sally wanted to know, uh, how can we flip the influence of the media to report on the positive nar narratives in our school? How can we flip... And maybe some of the negative uh, yeah. stories that we hear. Um, I don't know if I would call it flipping because I, I think that 
the narrative that's out there is, um, I mean, just the way that it exists, it, it's, um, it, it's anti-intellectual, it's, um, it's confrontational. I, I might've used the term earlier uh, this evening about a cult. I mean, I, I've never experienced um, anything like this. I mean, and I've, you know, I've been through what I thought were the, uh, I guess, penultimate reading wars. Um, I remember back um, with No Child Left Behind, where um, there were incredible, incredibly bad and uh, unseemly things happening in the U.S. Department of Education under a woman named Margaret Spellings, who was this uh, Secretary of Education, where there was actually, you know, underhanded sabotaging of states no child left behind um, grant applications. And um, that's the closest thing that to remind me of what's going on now. Um, You know, there there was at the end or during no child left behind leading into reading first. And of course, no child left behind came with the huge demand that um, elementary schools have a big focus on phonics and after a few years, there was what's called the Reading First Study. I believe it was published in 2008, 2009. And um, it's puzzling to me that the phonics advocates out there never really mentioned this study because it was um, the gold standard, meaning it it had a, an experimental design, which was being touted as this is this is the Cadillac. This is the glory of experimental design by the current the administration at the time. And when all was said and done, what they found was kids who um, were in reading first classrooms got better at phonics tests. Their scores were statistically significantly better than kids who are not in these classrooms. But there's no statistical differences in comprehension, which is the point of reading. And and so, you know, like we're in this gigantic narrative that gets fed by, um, and and I have to say the internet was not as robust and as um, sketchy back in the late 80s and early 90s as it is now. And um, I, I'm, I don't know how to explain what I see as like wholesale hook, line, and sinker, um, people just believing things that are not true. And so I, you know, I've always like thought um, that people should uh, be critical readers. And like, I always think about the claim and evidence structure in a, in a spoken or written text where, okay, there's a claim, where's the evidence. And if you go to these media accounts, uh, especially Emily Hanford and um, also Natalie Wexler, who I'd put second in, um, contributing most to misleading ideas about literacy development. Um, they they mention stuff, they never cite research while advocating for a science. And from my perspective, science revolves around demonstrable findings and um, rep, re- replicating things. Um, so um, I, I can't quite explain why so many people are behind this. I mean, uh, uh, part of the undercarriage here is um, money-making. And of course, you know, there's the, um, if you look, for example, at the International Dyslexia Association, and you look at their sponsors, it's sort of like IRA was and ILA are the, like the sponsors are publishers. Um, in, in one of my, I, I belong to five or six Facebook groups. One is called the Science of Reading. And I mean, it's, it's so transparent. Um, it, it's run by Amplify, which is like, like, 
it's it's like a publisher who makes money from touting the things that this um facebook community um reads about and 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 then i get on those um chats and i i really have to um be polite and i try not to con- contribute t- too often so far but people saying these people like lucy Hawkins, you know all they want to do is make a buck and and i'm like you're you're saying this on a website that's sponsored by amplify which is part of the capitalist society i mean we all live there but you you don't uh, you don't understand that or it doesn't matter to you so i i'm not sure how flipping the narrative goes but you know i have seen um I think reading recovery is doing a very nice job of, of again, in Facebook of parent testimonials, because um, in, in my experience, the, the thing that works best at the state level is to get a couple of um, teary eyed parents to testify in front, in front of the state legislative body. And it's, it's hard not to react in a way that you want to help a, a crying parent who's telling you about the challenges that their child is facing or has faced. Um, it's just that that that's being done in one way um, and in a very organized way ac- across the, the nation. Um, I do like if you're not a regular reader of a guy named Paul Thomas, who's at uh, Furman University, um, he's he's great i mean he's 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 meticulous and he's eloquent and he makes um what i th- i think is close to airtight arguments against what i see going on um as you can imagine and then just recently um the literacy research association has a series of three um articles or position statements by uh, Marin Ackerman who's at the university of calgary and she's done a pretty nice job of pulling apart the, um, the arguments that are in the popular press. And, um, and, and I think in pulling those arguments apart and Paul Thomas does this also, excuse me, you get, um, you get a basis for, for pushing back. You know, I, I, my concern is um, it seems to me like there are a lot of people who are, um, they're immune to to uh, convincing arguments. You know, they, they could care less about a perspective that's informed and um, probably much more accurate and truthful than the one they hold. But it, it doesn't really matter to them. It, it reminds me of um, some of the the national politics that I've experienced over the last decade, um, and I I wish it weren't so. But um, I, again, to get try to be positive. The, the idea of flipping the narrative, I, th- I think trying to shape the narrative with um, things like parent testimonials and just um, pushing back on the narratives that are um, false, outright false, or um, cherry picking w- is, is really important. And that, that stuff is definitely out there. There's, there's, uh, there's, there's loads of research studies that um, can be used to counter arguments. I just... Um, fear that we're not as organized as um, the the groups that have already been in state houses and have influenced legislation in a um, I, what I would say is an unfortunate way. So, and uh, I put in Paul Thomas's Twitter handle in the chat, and um, Sally put in the uh, Literacy Research Association's stories, the science of reading, and the bias in media reporting. 
Um, and then Judy also mentioned uh, reading the inspector general reports on reading first. And I know Judy's got, you know, yeah. kind of the knowledge there. And I remember a, a former principal colleague of mine who went through the reading first program and said, we spent a million bucks and we got nothing out of it yeah. other than kids who are better at phonics. So yeah. um, great, great resources. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I, I would also say um, Paul's work and Marin's work, I I like them because they um, they give me hope. They're motivating um, to see the work that those folks have been doing um, is, you know, I, I feel like I feel part of that community, you know, whether or not it's it's one that people sign up for or if it's one that you uh, join by um, reading similar things and having similar thoughts. So. Any other questions for Peter? We're, we're coming in about, um, about 35, 40 minutes here. I don't want to um, um, keep Peter too long, but if anyone else has anything on their mind. Well, I had late coffee, so I can go as long as you <laughs> Okay. Well, thank you. We really appreciate your time. Um, sure. Well, I really appreciate that you guys took the time to read the book. I, that's, it's really flattering to me. And it, it um, it's actually the, I've, authored or co-authored a number of books and this is really my favorite book so i um thank you well thank you it's super timely and i would put your book amongst all of these other resources uh right at the top and in terms of being more knowledgeable and be able to advocate for our schools and our kids so thank you peter and sure. uh, we appreciate your time sure so is is that that's it okay <laughs> um unless anyone else has any more questions I, I, um, I, sorry, I'm actually uh, I'm coming to you from my COVID bed, um, so this probably isn't going to sound very articulate. Um, so uh, what do you do when or how do you think we can go ahead with children who are getting it from uh, getting all, like, mixed messages and, like, from different... Um, different ways <laughs> you know so like um you know I get kids who are like are very confused and I don't know how like I don't want to undermine the uh, other adults in their lives so how do you kind of like um you know cope with both <laughs> now when you say that like a kid's getting a mixed message like someone is saying phonics is the way your path to becoming a better yeah, reader. So, so like so at school they're getting um they're getting a phonics only kind of way um oh they're not ready to we don't really read books we don't really write stories um uh and then I'm sort of uh I'm a, a resource teacher of literacy so I go in and I teach kids right. who are the lowest in literacy at different schools and I go in and I have to try and kind of build them up and read books with them. And, you know, I mean, of course I do phonics stuff as well because sure. um, everybody does. Um, yeah. But, uh, but just that, you know, like, so they get this feeling um, that they can't do it. They have that sort of self efficacy lacking um, because maybe they can't do it that way or they get confused and like, Oh, I have to do it this way for her and this way for her. And right. it just gets very confusing for them. So yeah, I don't that, know quite how to how to meet that need uh, or that confusion. Well, that that is a really uh, rough spot for a kid and for a teacher to be in. Um, but 
Yeah, something I said earlier, um, which we all know, um, that once a child trusts you and and knows that you're working for them in their best interests, I think, um, you know, I, I, in the States, we have this saying, nothing succeeds like success, you know, and even for the most struggling reader, you know, if we can um, frame success as we we sat through a story together and we talked about it and how much we enjoyed it. I, I would mark that as a success and maybe a, a group of those experiences is a nice re-entry into enjoying literacy in school. And, um, and so it's not um, displacing uh, what a child otherwise values, but it's, um, it's saying like, when you're here in my classroom, here are some things that we're after. And um, one of them is, uh, enjoyment and um, and coming back to the idea of joy and joyfulness when we read and write and speak and listen, and and I think that wins over kids um, if it's going well rather quickly, but it also um, is notable to parents who um, will see that um, in their children's faces and their posture and uh, the way they talk about school. So, yeah, oh, that's a, that's a that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> Thanks. I, well, sure. It's my pleasure. <laughs> and I threw that in the chat, uh, the framing the small wins in the classroom. Yeah. Hi, Peter. Um, I'm Sandy Brumbaum. I'm a reading recovery teacher leader, and my trainer is Adria Klein. Oh, um, great, great. So we've read a few of your books um, in our uh, groups. Um, and and um, I would say that at our reading recovery um, teacher leader Institute this summer, it was very purposeful by the reading recovery community to um, look for um, testimonials from teachers and parents and students. So, I, and, and I'm glad to hear that um, you think that that's successful. <laughs> Good. Um, well, it, it it works for me, but I'm not representative, right, of of people that were trying to uh, change their minds. But um, right, it's, it's right, definitely right. a start. And um, yeah, those testimonials are detailed. They're not just, oh, my kid feels good or my kid got better. It's like they talk about actual reader behaviors that are um, getting better. So, Right. Um, What I would say, though, is I just was in another meeting with um, talking about the Science of Reading podcast that Emily Hanford, you know, sold a story. And there were a lot of um, upper grade teachers, middle school, upper um, high school teachers who said, you know, a friend of mine told me about this, or my sister-in-law told me about this, or, you know, somebody told me about the podcast and they listened to it. And they said, what she was saying really resonated with them because, because they have kids in their classrooms who aren't reading. Right. And so now she doesn't have to provide proof, right. She is providing, you know, examples and teachers are like latching onto this and saying, oh, I used to teach like this, or, oh, I used to. And so I think that, you know, we want her to cite evidence, but people who are out there teaching and trying to teach, you know, classrooms of kids who aren't reading, right. like they then see this as yes, as validation, right. or as, you know, I, you know, I, I taught it wrong, or, you know, like, I don't like Lucy anyway, or I don't like her curriculum. And so, um, right. you know, I'm just going to dump on her some more, right? So I think that. Um, you know, she's a, she's a, she's a reporter and she's telling a story and she's, right. um, you know, and, and Natalie Wexler too, right? It's like, 
um, people just like lap it up because it something about it like speaks to them. Right, right. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think Wexler and Hanford both um, help us understand how shallow some people's understanding of something as complex as literacy can be. And um, I'm I'm amazed that people don't catch the irony of the title of her story, which is sold a story. I mean, like, yeah, if, if you sit through those five or six things, that's exactly what's happened to you. You've been sold a story. Um, but um, I... I, I think just that that idea of um, reminding people that those reporters really don't give any evidence to support their claims um, is, is important. But I, I totally agree, like a middle school teacher who has some kids who are struggling to read and write, um, who may not be familiar with an elementary reading curriculum, could latch on to the idea that, oh, the reason I have these struggling readers and writers in seventh grade is because somebody didn't do the right work when they were teaching first and second grade um, and, and un, undoing the um, lack of truthfulness in that narrative is really important. It's, One of our challenges. And it's interesting, Sandy, I have not listened to them yet. I've been asked several times if I have, and I have not yet. Um, I'm deciding to read them, the transcripts. And it's interesting when you print out the transcripts, the very first line is, this is designed to be listened to. And I believe it's, there's a lot of music in it. There's a lot of, you know, like you can hear the people's voices. And as Peter was saying, those testimonials really, I think, you know, can influence how you perceive it. And that might be one strategy. Um, yeah. I'm going to try anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but um, other questions? Two quick uh, thoughts. Um, I was the director uh, for the open court study. It happened in my district and I was the language arts director. So as Dick Ellington used to say, the infamous study. Um, and uh, I think, Peter, you made the comment that the media was not what it was, <laughs> what it is now. It wasn't then. Yeah. And so uh, it was... Um, it was a lonely fight uh, because yeah. I knew what was happening, uh, and yet it was impossible to really uh, be a lone voice because everybody was still trying to play nicely. Yeah. Uh, so that's one of the things that I that I want to uh, suggest to people is that while we need to be respectful, playing nicely doesn't really work with people yeah. who are dysfunctional. And yeah. this dysfunctional kind of argument. Yeah, exactly. The second thing is the reemergence of the five pillars. And mm -hmm. even uh, the curmudgeon Michael Presley came to say that there were more than five pillars, right? Yeah. And so what I'm concerned about is that we're going to be right back to silo teaching. Yeah. So we'll, we'll teach fluency here and we'll teach and every one of those five pillars will have an end rather than the four as a means to an end of comprehension. Right. Yeah. And so I worry about and you might have some suggestions about how to how to um, create uh, an alternative narrative to the five pillars because we we pretty much stopped talking about them yeah. and they're back 
in a robust kind of way again. Yeah. Well, you know, I, th- I think part of that is to remind folks continually that we read to uh, understand, to construct meaning, and that um, you don't get off on these uh, related tangents of, well, look at the fluency score that my student has, you know, or um, look how many um, words this child can decode in a, in a minute. Um, and I I think there's value to that narrative to, to just push back and... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I <laughs> like, for example, people cite NAEP scores as a, um, as evidence that we're not teaching phonics well. And, um, as someone who knows assessment fairly well, you know, my first pushback on that is, uh, that's not a decoding test. That's a comprehension test. And when you have an assessment as powerful and consequential as NAEP or this more, more consequential statewide reading assessments, um, there are what we call warranted inferences and unwarranted inferences. And to to say that um, phonics is the cause of fourth graders' scores maintaining or dipping um, is wrong. It's, it's an unwarranted inferences. And then you might also go on to say, you know, given how our society has changed and the number of children living at or below the poverty line, the, the, the fact that NAEP scores have generally stayed level is is probably an astounding accomplishment, but but that's that's another argument, I guess. And there was a question from Terry Underwood, who was a uh, literacy professor out in California. He he was wondering about your thoughts, if you had any, on NAEP's recent decision to mute the role of prior knowledge in its future reading tests. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. Yeah, so I was on the NAEP framework panel for 2025, and um, we wrapped up our work last year. Um, I'm sure we all know that when you get a, a reading comprehension test score, um, it is uh, closely related to both the strategies and skills that a student has, but also the prior knowledge that a student has for the content of the text that's being read. And there are loads of um, experiments that have demonstrated this Um well before the studies that Natalie Wexford cites, uh, for example, in the 70s, there were tons of studies at the University of Pittsburgh that had people read familiar and unfamiliar text, and it demonstrated that prior knowledge was the the main contributor to um, test scores. So in the 2025 NAEP reading framework, what the panelists, I was one of the panelists, um, recommended was, let's try to um, take prior knowledge out of the equation, which which is, you can't do that. But what we wanted to do was to control for prior knowledge on NAEP reading passages. So the, 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 the thinking there goes, we get a, a much uh, more pure or accurate read of what um, children's actual reading comprehension is, because you're, you're, you're taking prior knowledge, acknowledging its power, but also controlling it. And, um, Everyone on the the panel thought this was a real step forward, a real um, sort of innovative and maybe revolutionary moment in reading assessment. And then we got pushback from, um, to be very blunt, from a lot of conservatives and Republicans. And um, it it's we there's an article that um, is coming out in the Journal of Literacy Research 
soon. And um, that article will explain things. If you want to email me, I'll try to get the latest version because it's um, it's been embargoed. But I could I can share I can share it without um, legal consequence. I'm sure I'm sure. But it it's another example of how um, there are powers out there that want things to happen or not happen. And um, the uh, just a little more of the nitty gritty of politics. The National Assessment Governing Board. Um, is chaired by a guy named Haley Barber, who was um, governor of, I believe, Alabama, um, a fairly conservative state. He's a Republican. And after serving as governor, he became a lobbyist for oil and tobacco companies. Um, And then he allowed people on the National Assessment Governing Board to do things that no people had ever been allowed to do, which was influence and um, oppose. as a minority, um, and they ended up, I think, doing damage to our work. But um, it, it, that's like another hour of me trying to explain things. But if you email me, I can um, send you um, the latest version of that. It's a fairly David Pearson was the chair of that uh, group. Yeah. We had a lot of, I think, a lot of really talented people in that group, and we all felt really um, betrayed and um, sad at the end of the experience i'll email you peter on that so you don't get um multiple emails about that okay and i can share share it when i post the the uh, podcast and um i'll link it to there if if that's okay of course yeah okay Um, so are you saying that um they are now not that they are including prior that they're keeping prior knowledge on the it's um, it, basically the NAEP is not going to change in terms of okay. um, how it ad- addresses the prior knowledge issue. So, Any other questions for Peter or any closing thoughts of our time together? I'm pretty passionate about writing and we haven't really talked about a whole lot here, but um, all the things that I see in classrooms, I know you know all the counties I work with, Fairfax, Prince William, Loudoun, because you're in Maryland. And these were counties that were entrenched in reading recovery, balanced literacy. Um, I was a literacy leader in Fairfax and it is heart-wrenching for me to visit these schools now in these counties and to see things that have been trashed, literally trashed, um, DRAs, level texts. Um, yeah. I get overwhelmed with emotion. Yeah, we can, um, we can see. Yeah. That's, uh... <laughs> well, that's me anyway, but um I, it's hard for me working with these new teachers who are so excited and I am thrilled for them. I, I, I really can't speak enough to how much I love working with them, but they're, they're getting all these mixed messages too, you know, and like you said, the pandemic was a nightmare for them, for everybody, but, um, it's just a challenge to 
be a mentor and support them with all of this going on. And I, I'm sure you don't have any words of wisdom, but writing this doesn't even happen. I mean, a writing workshop was so huge in Fairfax County. Right, I mean, right. I learned everything I knew about writing with Lucy's stuff then. I, it's like just heartbreaking. So. Right, right. Well, yeah, now people won't buy books that are published by Heinemann because they publish Lucy Cotton's book. Um, it's so it's crazy. really scary. And um, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good stuff that we can do with um, our beginning teachers. And I share your enthusiasm. You know, when I need a, a dose of idealism and energy, I look forward to my undergraduate um, reading methods classes. Um, but, you know, I, I think sharing with them um, like I, I, I find YouTube has some just incredible examples of very effective lessons on whatever aspect of reading, motivation and engagement, um, attending to individual differences. Of course, there's tons of YouTubes on the strategy and skills also. But yeah. um, and then having, you know, I, I think our undergraduates are really keen observers of little kids because often it's the first time they've actually had a formal you know, experience of of sitting with them and helping them key on the things that that are valuable above and beyond learning consonant blends. Um, I think is is a way to you know th then the evidence is is in their faces and um, it it's reaffirming. I think for a lot of our beginning teachers. Thanks, Jay. Sure. Anyone else that has questions or closing thoughts? My closing thought is just that I'm uh, really looking forward to hearing you at LitCon, which oh, I'm great. coming all, all the way from New Zealand for. So, Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and Columbus in January is the best place to be. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, get, in, get insurance on your uh, flight. <laughs> yeah. No, no, well, no, I, I would just fine. like to, to thank you for, uh, for, for being on the Zoom and for, for reading the book. And if it... Um, was productive for you to read the book. I, I'm, that's all I could hope for. So thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. Sure. And thanks everyone for being here and uh, have a good night and uh, a great Friday in your classrooms or wherever you are uh, working with kids from. So thanks everyone. Great. Great. And Matt, thank you for putting this together. Yeah. Oh, my pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>